Section three of Mark Twain's Autobiography with an Introduction by Albert Bigelow Payne, Volume two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. New York, Wednesday, January twenty fourth, nineteen o six. Tells of the defeat of Mr. Blaine for the presidency, and how Mr. Clemens, Mr. Twitchell's, and Mr. Goodwin's votes were cast for Cleveland. It is plain, I think, that this old article was written about twenty-two years ago, and that it followed by about three or four months the defeat of James G. Blaine for the presidency, and the election of Grover Cleveland, the Democratic candidate, a temporary relief from a Republican Party domination which had lasted a generation. I had been accustomed to vote for Republicans more frequently than for Democrats, but I was never a Republican and never a Democrat. In the community I was regarded as a Republican, but I had never so regarded myself. As early as 1865 or 66 I had had this curious experience that whereas up to that time I had considered myself a Republican, I was converted to a no-party independence by the wisdom of a rabid Republican. This was a man who was afterward a United States senator, and upon whose character rests no blemish that I know of, except that he was the father of the William R. Hearst of today, and therefore grandfather of yellow journalism, that calamity of calamities. Hearst was a Missourian. I was a Missourian. He was a long, lean, practical, common-sense, uneducated man of fifty or thereabouts. I was shorter and better informed, at least I thought so. One day in the Lick House in San Francisco he said, I am a Republican. I expect to remain a Republican always. It is my purpose, and I am not a changeable person. But look at the condition of things. The Republican Party goes right along from year to year, scoring triumph after triumph, until it has come to think that the political power of the United States is its property, and that it is a sort of insolence for any other party to aspire to any part of that power. Nothing can be worse for a country than this. To lodge all power in one party and keep it there is to ensure bad government and the sure and gradual deterioration of the public morals. The parties ought to be so nearly equal in strength as to make it necessary for the leaders on both sides to choose the very best men they can find. Democratic fathers ought to divide up their sons between the two parties if they can, and do their best in this way to equalize the powers. I have only one son. He is a little boy, but I am already instructing him, persuading him, 
preparing him to vote against me when he comes of age let me be on whichever side i may he is already a good democrat and i want him to remain a good democrat until i become a democrat myself then i shall shift him to the other party if i can it seemed to me that this unlettered man was at least a wise one and i have never voted a straight ticket from that day to this i have never belonged to any party from that day to this i have never belonged to any church from that day to this i have remained absolutely free in those matters and in this independence i have found a spiritual comfort and a peace of mind quite above price when blaine came to be talked of by the republican leaders as their probable candidate for the presidency the republicans of hartford were very sorry and they thought they foresaw his defeat in case he should be nominated but they stood in no great fear of his nomination the convention met in chicago and the balloting began in my house we were playing billiards sam dunham was present also f g whitmore henry c robinson charles e perkins and edward m bunce we took turns in the game and meanwhile discussed the political situation george the colored butler was down in the kitchen on the guard at the telephone as fast as a ballot was received at the political headquarters downtown it was telephoned out to the house and george reported it to us through the speaking tube nobody present was seriously expecting the nomination of mr blaine all these men were republicans but they had no affection for blaine for two years the hartford current had been holding blaine up to scorn and contumely it had been denouncing him daily it had been mercilessly criticizing his political conduct and backing up the criticisms with the deadly facts up to that time the current had been a paper which could be depended on to speak its sincere mind about the prominent men of both parties and its judgments could be depended upon as being well and candidly considered and sound it had been my custom to pin my faith to the current and accept its verdicts at par the billiard game and the discussion went on and on and by and by about mid-afternoon george furnished us a paralyzing surprise through the speaking-tube mr blaine was the nominee the butts of the billiard cubes came down on the floor with a bump and for a while the players were dumb they could think of nothing to say then henry robinson broke the silence he said sorrowfully that it was hard luck to have to vote for that man i said but we don't have to vote for him robinson said do you mean to say that you are not going to vote for him 
Yes, I said, that is what I mean to say. I am not going to vote for him. The others began to find their voices. They sang the same note. They said that when a party's representatives choose a man, that ends it. If they choose unwisely, it is a misfortune, but no loyal member of the party has any right to withhold his vote. He has a plain duty before him, and he can't shirk it. He must vote for that nominee. I said that no party held the privilege of dictating to me how I should vote, that if party loyalty was a form of patriotism, I was no patriot, and that I didn't think I was much of a patriot anyway, for oftener than otherwise what the general body of Americans regarded as the patriotic course was not in accordance with my views, that if there was any valuable difference between being an American and a monarchist, it lay in the theory that the American could decide for himself what is patriotic and what isn't, whereas the king could dictate the monarchist's patriotism for him, a decision which was final and must be accepted by the victim, that in my belief I was the only person in the sixty millions with Congress and the administration back of the sixty millions who was privileged to construct my patriotism for me. They said, suppose the country is entering upon a war, where do you stand then? Do you arrogate to yourself the privilege of going your own way in the matter, in the face of the nation? Yes, I said, that is my position. If I thought it an unrighteous war, I would say so. If I were invited to shoulder a musket in that cause and march under that flag, I should decline. I would not voluntarily march under this country's flag or any other when it was my private judgment that the country was in the wrong. If the country obliged me to shoulder the musket, I could not help myself, but I would never volunteer. To volunteer would be the act of a traitor to myself, and consequently traitor to my country. If I refused to volunteer I should be called a traitor, I am well aware of that, but that would not make me a traitor. I should still be a patriot, and in my opinion the only one in the whole country. There was a good deal of talk but I made no converts. They were all candid enough to say that they did not want to vote for Mr. Blaine, but they all said they would do it nevertheless. Then Henry Robinson said, It is a good while yet before election. There is time for you to come around, and you will come around. The influences about you will be too strong for you. On election day you will vote for Blaine. I said I should not go to the polls at all. The current had an uncomfortable time thence until midnight. J. 
General Hawley, the editor-in-chief, and he was also commander-in-chief of the paper, was at his post in Congress, and the telegraphing to and fro between the current and him went on diligently until midnight. For two years the current had been making a tar-baby of Mr. Blaine, and adding tar every day, and now it was called upon him to praise him, hurrah for him, and urge its well-instructed clientele to elevate the tar-baby to the chief magistracy of the nation. It was a difficult position, and it took the current people and General Hawley nine hours to swallow the bitter pill. But at last General Hawley reached a decision, and at midnight the pill was swallowed. Within a fortnight the current had acquired some facility in praising where it had so long censured. Within another month the change in its character was become complete, and to this day it has never recovered its virtue entirely, though under Charles Hopkins Clark's editorship it has gotten back ninety percent of it, by my estimate. Charles Dudley Warner was the active editor of the time. He could not stomach the new conditions. He found himself unable to turn his pen in the other direction and make it proceed backward. Therefore he decided to retire his pen altogether. He withdrew from the editorship, resigned his salary, lived thenceforth upon his income as a part proprietor of the paper, and upon the proceeds of magazine work and lecturing, and kept his vote in his pocket on election day. The conversation with the learned American member of the Board of Scholars, which revised the New Testament, did occur as I have outlined it in that old article. He was vehement in his denunciation of Blaine, his relative, and said he should never vote for him. But he was so used to revising New Testaments that it took him only a few days to revise this one. I had hardly finished with him when I came across James G. Batterson. Batterson was president of the great Travelers Insurance Company. He was a fine man, a strong man, and a valuable citizen. He was fully as vehement as that clergyman had been in his denunciations of Blaine but inside of two weeks he was presiding at a great Republican ratification meeting, and to hear him talk about Blaine and his perfections, a stranger would have supposed that the Republican Party had had the good fortune to secure an archangel as its nominee. Time went on, election day was close at hand, Late one frosty night, Twitchell, the Reverend Francis Goodwin, and I were tramping homeward through the deserted streets in the face of a wintry gale, after a seance of our Monday evening club, and after a supper-table debate over the political situation 
in which the fact had come out, to the astonishment and indignation of everybody, the ladies included, that three traitors were present, that Goodwin, Twitchell, and I were going to keep our votes in our pockets instead of casting them for the archangel. Along in that homeward tramp, somewhere, Goodwin had a happy idea and brought it out. He said, Why are we keeping back these three votes from Blaine? Plainly, the answer is to do what we can to defeat Blaine. Very well, then, these are three votes against Blaine. The common-sense procedure would be to cast six votes against him by turning in our three votes for Cleveland. Even Twitchell and I could see that there was sense in that, and we said, That is a very good thing to do, and we'll do it. On election day we went to the polls and consummated our hellish design. At that time the voting was public. Any spectator could see how a man was voting, and straightway this crime was known to the whole community, this double crime in the eyes of the community. To withhold a vote from Blaine was bad enough, but to add to that iniquity by actually voting for the Democratic candidate was criminal to a degree for which there was no adequate language discoverable in the dictionary. From that day forth, for a good while to come, Twitchell's life was a good deal of a burden to him. To use a common expression, his congregation soured on him, and he found small pleasure in the exercise of his clerical office, unless perhaps he got some healing for his hurts now and then through the privilege of burying some of those people of his it would have been a benevolence to bury the whole of them, I think, and a profit to the community. But if that was Twitchell's feeling about it, he was too charitable in his nature and too kindly to expose it. He never said it to me, and I think that if he would have said it to anyone, I should have been the one. Twitchell had most seriously damaged himself with his congregation. He had a young family to support. It was a large family already, and it was growing. It was becoming a heavier and heavier burden every year, but his salary remained always the same. It became less and less competent to keep up with the domestic drain upon it, and if there had ever been any prospect of increasing this salary, that prospect was gone now. It was not much of a salary. It was four thousand dollars. He had not asked for more, and it had not occurred to the congregation to offer it. Therefore his vote for Cleveland was a distinct disaster to him. That exercise of his ostensible great American privilege of being free and independent in his political opinions and actions, proved a heavy calamity. But the Reverend 
francis goodwin continued to be respected as before that is publicly privately he was damned but publicly he had suffered no harm perhaps it was because the public approval was not a necessity in his case his father was worth seven millions and was old the reverend francis was in the line of promotion and would soon inherit as far as i was myself concerned i did not need to worry i did not draw my living from hartford it was quite sufficient for my needs hartford's opinion of me could not affect it and besides it had long been known among my friends that i had never voted a straight ticket and was therefore so accustomed to crime that it was unlikely that disapproval of my conduct could reform me and maybe i wasn't worth the trouble anyway by and by about a couple of months later new year's eve arrived and with it the annual meeting of joe's congregation and the annual sale of the pews end of section three new york wednesday january twenty fourth nineteen o six